Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and this is episode 13. On today's episode, our guest is Harry Kondabulu. He is a American stand-up comic. He has a special on Netflix right now and he is a director of a documentary called The Problem with Apu. So to give you a quick context of that documentary, in 2017, Harry Kondabulu releases this documentary. And it's basically a documentary about Apu from The Simpsons and how it's impacted American society and the effect it has on South Asians growing up in America or anywhere around the world. The documentary created change because Hank Azaria, the voice who does Apu, who's also white, stepped down from his role and the creators of The Simpsons responded and not just responded by a tweet or anything, but they literally responded through an episode of The Simpsons. So we're going to talk about all that and some more. If you're enjoying the show and you're enjoying the page and you want to help out, just visit www.brownhistorypodcast.com. It helps a lot and it goes a long way. Thank you so much for your support. And uh, stick around. It's going to be a great episode. Here we go. They don't even meet the two sides. and Yeah, but yeah, it's uh, I've done both. I mean, being a comedian feels so long ago already, man. Really? Why? Oh, because of the pandemic. Yeah, I haven't done stand-up since March. And who knows when I'm going to do it again. And I'm not one of those who wants to find a way to do it and do a distance thing and have or people in some stands are doing putting people in cars and they're beeping at punchlines and or like every it, it, we're in a room but there's no drinks or food and everyone's separated by 10 i'm like i'll just wait to do the real thing and i'm not into like zoom shows if i can avoid it you where you stand traditional way i want to do it the way i mean i didn't sign up to to do any of this other stuff i signed up to be a stand-up and when i when i'm on um you know, I have done Zoom shows, and when I do these Zoom shows, it just feels like I'm being the funny guy on a conference call. Do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't feel like stand-up in the slightest. And True. Not what but, I signed up for either. Well, you are doing a podcast. You've got a podcast going on. A yeah, that's a podcast. Not, I don't know if it's funny or not, but it's, it's funny. political. It's funny. It's both. You know, certainly the it's, it's much more um, focused on our points of view and our values more than... Um, like st- my standup is certainly is very much my, my, you know, who I am, what I believe, you know, but at the same time, uh, the, pu- the joke is the, the, the whole goal is punchlines, right? With mm-hmm. the podcast, it's, you know, being informative, learning something and teaching what you've learned to other people. So it's a, it's kind of a different thing, but you know, uh, the, the art of standup, you know, it, right now is not it's just it's not in good shape because we just can't get out there is that giving you anxiety because i know i mean i don't know if it's with all comedians but from what i understand comedians have this kind of compulsion to need to need a laughter to need kind of like the performance it definitely feels weird not to be able um to express myself in the way I'm used to expressing myself and receiving laughter the way I've gotten it for 20 years. You know, I've been doing yeah. this a long time, so it just feels like everything's a little out of whack. And it's not to say I can't function without it. And I have enough creative projects and the podcasts I'm doing. And certainly there's a creative itch that's being scratched, but cert- it's not stand-up is its own special thing. There's a reason why people like Jon Stewart or like these super famous comics who've made tons of money and are really successful in film or in in TV go back to stand-up because they did it for stand-up to begin with. 
-hmm. the whole goal of all the other stuff many times was how do I get notable enough where more people come to my shows live? And that's, you know, that's a stand-up impulse. Like, you know, sometimes that, that changes over time. And certainly like, you know, I have a family now and, you know, that change, you know, certainly like, you know, you think about things, not just in terms of how do I do stand up again, but also like, how does money. that fit into my, make money and fit into my family life. But, you know, stand up is always something that's, that is so, you know, ever present also. And I think this speaks to like all stand up to some degree, but I think especially if you're like a person of color or in any marginalized group, like you can say what you want in stand up. You're not dependent on other people giving you the ability to broadcast yourself. Like, especially if you're like a minority waiting for most often like white tastemakers to give you an opening or, or white gatekeepers to give you an opening to like actually be on TV or to publish your thing or uh, to put you on a show, whatever it is, right? The idea that with stand-up, you can just go on stage and talk yeah, it's very liberating. That, but that's now. That's that's like, you know, in this modern day time. And you've been doing comedy no, for no, a No, 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 even, even before. Even back then. Even in the, like the 2000s and the 90s. Before that, man, Richard Pryor, all these comics from the 70s, 60s and 70s, stand-up was a way True. for them. Because if everything is based on capitalism and making money, you're looking at a time period, you know, before the internet age, where you're thinking there's four or five major networks, movies cost a lot of money. You're not thinking about the minority audience, right? You're obviously no. thinking about mainstream white America, for example, and what's going to reach mainstream white America. And it's not going to be depictions uh, that are accurate or stories of people of color that are different, you know, or stories that are different than what their norm is, right? You, that's, they don't think that's going to bring them money. So they pick the safest bet, you know? Um, with stand-up, you're able to go on stage, you sell tickets, you draw crowds. That's hard to argue with. Mm -hmm. So if you're somebody who's selling out giant arenas or big rooms, if you're someone who makes a TV show uh, or, or a film, like, well, this product's been tested and it's successful. If you're like, you know, back then, especially if you're like a good-looking white person or a, a white person that's accessible to people, you don't need to prove it the same way. You're going to get a chance, but if you're in a marginalized group, you better prove that you actually have some draw, some pull. And stand-up has always given us that. That's why you notice, like, like in other, like even in previous eras, it's always comics, comedians, or people of color who are able to rise a lot more than maybe their peers in drama, right? While True. like you have people playing terrible roles. Um, you know, as actors, comedians, like there's something about that. Let pe people, you know, if you can make people laugh, they forgive you for a lot. They give you a lot more room. And that was true then. It's true now. Uh, now, you, at least you have more chances to like, because media has been fragmented. Mm -hmm. We're not think looking at four networks. Like there's a million different places where you can share your story. And people aren't worried about having the biggest audience. They're hoping to have a audience because, you know, there's a million places you can broadcast. So it's like, oh, well, Asians have money. Why don't we get people that appeal to them and they'll pay their money and their money's as good as everyone else's money. Like it became a very different calculation. But that being said, stand-up is like the freest art form in, in so many ways because it's 
direct to aud audience. If you have something to say, music's incredible. People can make political music, and if the hook's good enough, people aren't even paying attention. Yeah. If, if they like the music, they don't know. Either, you know, people are, you have like, I'm sure racists and, and, you know, conservatives loving Rage Against the Machine. It's like everything they're about is against what you believe in, but you're not paying attention because you get, you buy into the sound. And comedy doesn't give you that in the same way. No. Like, it's pretty, it's a lot more blunt. Yeah. So. I miss that. I miss that very much. Do you have a lot to say now? I mean, I mean, I just talked for the last 10 minutes in a row. So clearly, <laughs> as in like, I'm hungry to say something because yeah. you didn't you didn't ask me many questions. And I've already answered five questions that you didn't even ask me. You took me, you so. took me off guard, man. You just went straight for it. Usually it's like a little buildup. But, you know, I hate talking to comedians because they're so smart and they're so, you know, witty and on, on top of their game. I, I can't keep up. I get I get freaked out. But it's kind of easy because the topic is you, right? You're the topic of right. the discussion. So I kind of want to, you know, get, start from your roots and kind of go and follow your path to where you are now. And yeah. I kind of want to really focus on the, you know, your parents and, and your child upbringing. Because we don't really hear the immigration story. Sure. So I wanted to know, like, where your dad grew up and your mom grew up and how they met. Um, my folks are both from southern India. Uh, my mother was born in a, a small town, which a small town in India is still like hundreds of thousands of people. So like, it's not, it's not a village. It's still a, it's, but it's, it's bigger than that, but it's not a city, but it's still huge. Um, it's a, it's a town called Penali, which is uh, in Andhra Pradesh, mm -hmm. the state of Guntur. Um, and my father uh also grew up in Andhra Pradesh except now the state split so he's technically on the Telangana side uh in an area called Somwaram uh, I guess the closest cities would be like Waira and Kamam and so yeah they grew up like kind of in even though it's the same state it's very different like my dad grew up in a much more rural setting more farming stuff like that and my mom grew up again like in a town so it's it's not a city but still it's there were more, you know, you had colleges, it's more of an educated elite, there's theater and all this other stuff. So, you know, it's a, it was seen as a cultural hub, even though it was, it was a town, it wasn't a city. So kind of very different settings. Mom uh, was a doctor, wow. which especially, you know, as a young Indian woman in the 70s to, you know, finish your education, then go even further and have your own practice in a small town, like my mom very much broke a lot of, um, she definitely defied expectations. And, and I think a lot of younger women pr probably looked up to my mom. That's younger women probably saw her as like, oh, she like, in addition, my mom is also really tall, you know, especially for an Indian woman. So I think there was this, she stood out to begin with, but I think that plus like, oh, she succeeded and she was able to do, um, you know, this incredible thing. And she was a, a doctor in a town that didn't have any women doctors. So her presence there was huge for the women in that community. Uh, my father, um, his background originally was in botany, which as you can imagine is not the most employable. Um, it's certainly a farming background. His father was a, a politician um, who was uh, still like not very notable in, um, in that area, my grandfather was a well-respected politician in the area on my dad's side. On my mom's side, he was a very, that my grandfather was a very well-respected um, uh, professor, you know, humanities professor, law, things like that. And um, so my father 
eventually comes to America because his sister got here first, sponsored rest of the family, you know. That, you were that born story. in India. No, I was born here. I was born here. So my parents hadn't met yet. My dad came to America first in the late, in the late 70s, lived with his brother, initially in Kansas and then New York City. Dad, like, Kansas. yeah, I know it's wild, right? Cause I have cousins in Kansas. Like my, um, one of my, you know, the aunt that came here first is still there and her kids are still there. And uh, the rest of the family spread out mostly to New York. And dad made, you know, his life working at a, Initially in his in his late twenties, mid to late twenties, working at a drugstore, you know, doing odd jobs. Like, you know, he, he was he's an immigrant trying to cut it, and eventually, you know, takes uh, you know, takes some courses to be an echocardiogram technician, and you know, ends up having an incredible career doing that. Like he's he was very good in his particular field. Um, you know, my parents had an arranged marriage. So, uh, you know, the families didn't know each other, but, you know, with, especially back then, it was like there was somebody they both trusted and both of them were getting a little older, uh, which at the time was late 20s is like older. Like now it's like people in the late 30s and early yeah. 40s getting married. Back then you're ancient if you're 26 and unmarried. So it's like different era for a woman especially for a woman especially for a woman oh my god like I, you know my mom has been very open with me about the fact that like that wasn't um you know getting married was not necessarily on her list of goals you know if you're gonna go to med school for that many years and work you know she's she was very focused on what she was doing but so they got married moved to the u.s to new york um had me and my brother mom ended up never being a doctor in the u.s i mean it's it's one of those things where it required a great deal of you know you to, in order to become a doctor from that point it wasn't like an automatic transfer well, it would require yeah, yeah exams and a bunch of other stuff and you're raising two kids that's not the easiest thing in the no world, so. in a new world in a new country in a new country where she's figuring everything out yeah. um so yeah that's that's my parents story brother and i grew up in queens new york did your mom like instill a good kind of like understanding of the world and kind of push you yeah. to work ethic and all these things? Both of them did the work ethic. Like my father and mother, like in like my dad, you know, being an echocardiogram technician, it's not a, a white collar job. It's not necessarily a blue collar job. It's like one of those jobs where you get pray you get paid pretty solid. It's a good, it's a good solid job, but it's a union job still. Right. which is great, right? Like it's still like, it's not in that, it's not management in the same way, you know, it's yeah. still under the union. And so, you know, pay was solid, but my dad worked like six or seven other jobs. He worked on weekends till I was like in my twenties. Like he really like busted his butt for something bigger. And my mom, you know, like every working mother, it's like you have your job. She eventually started working um, uh, at a cath lab and worked still, you know, in, in medicine, but not as a doctor. Um, so she worked as a, a lab manager and it also, it was actually a union job. And between that and, and raising the two of us, you know, women have that often have that second unpaid job that sometimes is even more work than the job they're getting paid for. Mm -hmm. And so the two of them were just working and, and, keeping it together and it was hard you know and and it's it's very typical of a lot of it's not like a unique story that i have in terms of parents who are working constantly and you know either by example or 
uh, clearly like, but you know, telling us like, you know, hard work was what was going to get us anywhere, whatever it was we were going to do. I don't think comedy was really no in that, but yeah, which is the unique story here is that you, their son decide one of their sons decides to become a comedian and the other son goes into music and you became a comedian during a time when people that look like you don't really aren't yeah. really on TV at all. And I remember yeah. seeing you as a kid, you know, just flashes of you here and there in bits and pieces, but we didn't have internet at that time. So I couldn't like Google your name or anything. Sure, sure. You are. But when I saw you, I was like, whoa, like there's a brown guy here and his name doesn't sound brown. I don't know. Is he brown? Because you have a last name I've never heard before. It's, 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 look... a, it's a South Indian name. Yeah, it's a South Indian name. Yeah. So I wasn't really sure. It wasn't a name that you would see in like Bollywood movies, right? Mm -mm. So grow up in one trial was a really big deal and i couldn't follow you i couldn't find where you were and the jokes that you were saying at that time i didn't really understand it because your your jokes aren't like like dumb jokes they're very political and they're very they're, they're deep you know what i mean like it's funny and then it makes you think after and at the time i didn't understand the context of the world I was living in. Of course. In. You, you kidding me? Like wh whenever I have a kid who's like 15 or 16 tell me how much they love my stand-up, I'm shocked because I would have hated me when I was 15 or 16. Like I didn't, like the things I talk about, the, how I approach stand-up, I'm very long form, some would say long-winded. So it kind of, if you're like 16 and you don't know what's going on in the world and your world is basically what you've learned from media and TV or whatever and the internet and this guy's coming and talking about stuff almost like a teacher like I could imagine like um uh, you know I was never really meant for everyone from the get-go not quite from the get-go but pretty early on I kind of decided where I wanted to go with it and you know I'm surprised that it's taken me this far. Maybe some of that is cultural changes that people I think are more you were ahead you know. of your time. I think you were a lot ahead of your time. I, I go back to your jokes and now I get it. And I'm like, wow, that that is so much more accurate and so much more, you know, you know, deeper. And I don't know, I think you were just ahead of your times. Because well, after you, that, yeah. from what I remember, Russell Peters came on board. And that was a really no, well, well, Russell was there first, man. Was he? Russell? I don't oh, know. No, Russell is Russell is old, like he's like first generation. He was in South man. Africa, I think, really big, but he it, was huge in Canada, man. He he hosted the Juno Awards, like yeah. Did he you was come a before him. Well after him. Oh really? Decades after, yeah. Like Russell, like he is like OG man. Like that dude, like um, that dude worked the road in Canada for a lot of years, and what happened was he had a Comedy Now special that took off online before things became viral. Now, like you have YouTube and all these other ways, but there was no YouTube like in the early 2000s. There was like Napster and there was all these other file sharing services. So a lot of Daisies and other Asians like, um, you know, had high speed internet connections and shit. And so we would put clips online and, and other Daisies at colleges and other places would passed them around and it was amazing because we'd never seen a brown comic so i saw russell peters when i was like i don't know like 17 18 19 and i was stunned it was like the greatest thing like oh my god there's one of us that exists and he does stand up but it's in canada i can't believe this guy exists you know and he was touring the uk and south africa and all over the place and 
once that special leaked viral before viral was even a thing, all of a sudden he's coming down to New York and LA and his rooms are packed. Like he was a guy that nobody knew down here. And once that thing leaked, like he inspired a generation of comics to do it. He gave a lot of us hope like, Oh, you can actually make it just because you're Brown. Like it doesn't mean that this Avenue's closed to you. This is in Canada, but still there's that little bit of room that like, maybe this could be here too. So no, he's definitely a, a generation before me. Like, you know, there's other people in that era too, in the U S like Aladdin, Ullah, um, uh, Vijay Nathan. Like there's a ton of people that came like, before me by anywhere from five to 10 or plus years. Um, and then I came up and like with me, like my era would have been like me, uh, Aziz Ansari, right. Kumail, Kumail Nanjiani, like that's all around the same time. Shortly after that, you get Aparna Nancherla and Hassan Minaj and like people like that. But that, that we're not that first generation for sure. And I, I was kind of, I was in that second wave that, um, still didn't see us on TV very much, but felt like maybe we had something to share. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I was probably the first to get really, you know, political in a mainstream way. I know Aladdin did some of that, but like, certainly I think I'm the one that like kind of was able to break through first with some of the kind of ideas I had. But, um, and it's nice to know that like the people that have come after me, like cite me as an influence, like that's a good feeling. Um, but yeah, I was definitely not the first. And you started, you did a documentary on The yeah. Simpsons. You killed, yeah. You basically kind of murdered Apu. That's what they Apu. say. It's The thing is, I don't even think they killed the character. I, I think that he, they just, they're not using him very much. And the, the guy who voices it said he didn't want to voice it anymore after seeing the documentary and giving it a thing. You know, it's weird because the story is really, you know, the documentary, most people even haven't even seen the documentary. So like the people who hate it the most haven't seen it. It's what they've heard about it. It's about being a fan of something and at the same time disagreeing with an element of it. And it's not to say you don't love the thing. It means you're critical of it because you care about it, because it's worth something to you. And also it's about like being brown and only having one thing, like, nothing else mm -hmm. the only thing that represents you and your family and your ancestry is a cartoon voice by a white guy there's nothing else there's n if there's other things then at least you have well I, I'll, I won't watch this i'll watch that but this is it this is and it. it's on the show that defines like an era for a lot of us like it was the show we all grew up watching and you know for me it, it taught me so much about comedy and tv and jokes and a lot of my heroes wrote for that show and like it's it's a it's a very important show and so it was that weird thing of man like this show's so great but i i you know i'm like in high school and i have to wince every time i see a poo because i know that that's going to be you know instead of being something that um is a source of pride it's going to be a source of embarrassment initially it was exciting because yeah. we had nothing so you see a brown face even if it's paint and it's a cartoon and you're like oh man they know we exist that's all you want. Like when you're not invited to the table, like you're happy with scraps. But after a while, you, you, you know, it's like, I'm an American. I was born here. I grew up in New York. I don't see any of my friends and family and people I care about represented. It's not fair. You expect more. And when you don't get more and you get ridiculed, it's like, this is a lose-lose. Like you want us to take a joke, which we're taking, but you never give us a chance to make a joke back. You never give us a chance to talk for ourselves. Yeah. What do you think it's going to lead to? It's going to lead to a, a 
Well, it leads to a couple of things. I think it leads to me, people who are frustrated, don't think it's fair, want to have a chance to speak and, and make jokes and do our thing and, and, you know, have things that represent us and not other people's view of us. And I think it leads to also the kind of basically that doesn't want to deal with the confrontation, laughs along with it, as I did at some point, you yeah, know, and gets angry that I made the film. You're making us look weak. You're making us look like we can't take a joke. And I'm like, we took a joke a long time, man. I'm talking about us talking back. That's the answer you got from the South Asian community? Like it, no, I got both of those. I got people who felt proud and felt like this is something we've needed a long time. And I'm proud. I'm happy my kids can see this. And I wish I had this and somebody who was able to say this before. And I got the other people who were like, you know, you're embarrassing us. Take a joke. I love the fact that he's an immigrant. It's a good, he's a good role model for our communities, a good representation. I'm like, how brainwashed are you? Like yes. nobody is watching that show and hearing his accent and leaving. That's funny. And what a great role model for the South Asian community. Like nobody's thinking that. No. And you know, I think when you are outnumbered and you don't have like, you know, I grew up around a lot of Brown people. I grew up in Queens, New York. I grew up with a sense of identity and pride. And it's not to say I didn't deal with racism. It's not to say I didn't deal with ridicule. And it's not to say I didn't have my own angst over what I was in this country, but I knew that I had a, like, a, like I knew I was grounded in something and I could see it in my communities. If you grew up in a place without brown people, without anybody who you know, stood, you know, stood their ground in that way culturally, and you were just trying to fit in, you were trying not to rock the boat, what do you think is gonna happen? You're gonna say whatever you're being fed and you're gonna be like, well, this is how you fit in and you laugh and you go along with it and you play their game. And eventually that becomes something you're not even intentionally doing anymore. You become very like conditioned into believing that like, you know, whatever they're saying is right. And what, and it's all just a joke and it doesn't matter. And, you know, I've always been in the camp and my parents have shown me this either by, by expressing it or by example, like, you have pride in yourself. It's not that you can't take a joke. You have pride in who you are and you don't let someone get away with degrading you or lowering your dignity. You stand up for yourself. And that doesn't necessarily mean violence, but that certainly means that you don't stay silent. You know, it's a funny thing because my parents, had, you know, were two-sided on that because on one side, they didn't want me to cause trouble. You know, they don't want me to like, you know, don't, don't do anything that would affect your grades or your career prospects, you know? Right. And at the same time, you deserve, my kid deserves respect. It's a, it's a tricky line, but that, that was always something, you know, that stood with me. Like, I deserve the same respect as my peers, and why should I get any less? The Simpsons response at the end, right? They put like a, they get Lisa Simpson yeah. to say something, which was along the lines of, why should something that was funny a long time ago not be something that wasn't offensive a long time ago shouldn't be offensive anymore? Let it go. It's essentially, yeah. It was. It yeah. Was, How'd you get that answer? I. It speaks a lot to white fragility, right? It's like they didn't even need to. Like, if you're that, um, I made a documentary on a cable network that most people didn't see. And you're a multi-million, maybe billion dollar, you know, organization, right? Like your show is global and you've done all these things. You can ignore me. It goes away. 
You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, whatever dent I can make, your silence will, you write it out. There's no reason to deal with me. I wasn't trying to troll them, but if I was, I won because they responded. Yeah, which and is they, cool, by the way. Well, the fact they responded, I think it says a lot to the criticism they were getting, but also to the fact they couldn't handle the criticism. You know, because not you can either ignore it or you can handle it as thoughtfully as possible as comedy writers. What is the best angle to take on this idea? Do we want to respond? If we respond, what does that look like? The way they responded was like half-ass, like political correctness sucks. This guy sucks. Get over it. That was essentially what it was. And also it's clear that nobody, you know, who was ahead of that show watched the documentary and Matt Groening probably didn't either, but they all had points of view on it. And so, you know, ultimately it, it was kind of a, a, you know, like a fuck you to people who even questioned it and it ended up backfiring because even if you disagreed with me and you like the Simpsons, it's clear that that point of view is not a Simpsons way of handling it. No. That it's, it's very fragile. Lisa is like, you know, if, if you were going to use the phrase politically correct social justice warrior, that's Lisa Simpson's character, basically. Yeah. So for her to say that is not being, um, it, it's not, that's not like what the, it's, it's not doing the character justice. It's inconsistent. No, so, you know, I think it's, it's sad because everything at some point, I think, can become the status quo. And at one point you have a piece of art it's also a piece of commerce that's like somewhat radical, is controversial, is is making these political jokes, is making these pop cultural jokes, and is is critiquing things. And it's so I mean, it, it influenced me greatly. It, it made me believe that you could be smart and funny. You know, like that was one of those shows because there was there was jokes that people got like, and there was jokes that super fans got that like subtle little things that I would only get later. You know, if you watched it three or four times. And it's like, wow, like that, like the depth of that. But, you know, once you make enough money and once you have any degree of influence or power, you run the risk of, you know, no longer being relevant and being like reinforcing the old guard. And that's kind of what you saw. It's a bunch of old white dudes mm -hmm. who see themselves as liberal, mm -hmm. um, who can't take criticism or don't know how to respond to it. You know, hearing things like, I'm sure we agree on 99% of things, but we, I'm like, that, that's not what the issue is. This isn't about our overall values. This is about a point of contention. This is about a specific thing. And yeah, I'm sure we agree on a lot of stuff because I'm a fan of the show. But this is, you know, I, it's, you know, the funny thing is they kept calling it a controversy. It's not a controversy. This has been around for 30 years. You just didn't hear us before. People have been, you know, saying shit about Apu, for, you know, like anyone who's brown, this didn't shock them. Like, what? They make fun of us? What do you mean? They make fun of brown people? That didn't shock us. We deal with that shit. It wasn't like, good thing you made a documentary. Otherwise, me as a brown person would not know that we deal with racism. Like, to us, it, it's not, it was more people were happy that it existed, that this documentary existed, but it didn't, it didn't shock them into, I can't believe this has happened or this is the way they treat us, mm -hmm. it, it was news for everybody else. You know, it wasn't a controversy. It was just, it was just, it was updating everybody on where we are. And that's another thing I see a lot. Like 
you know, we're, what that documentary is or shows like Fresh Off the Boat or other pieces of, of media that have come out in recent years, I watch certain things. I'm like, you know what? This story is an old story. Like the Apu thing's an old story that finally got attention, right? Yeah. But they ignored us or didn't let us talk for so long. Our old shit is new to them. The stuff we weren't allowed to talk about 20 years ago is new to them. It's not new to us. True. I'm excited about that next level when we can make jokes or tell stories from our perspective without having to explain everything constantly because they actually are invested enough to know who we are. And that's, that's the next level, which I think we're getting to where we actually can act, you know, tell our stories genuinely and not without the thought of, well, white people get this. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if white people get it. They, they can get it if they want to get it. Google means you can get anything if you want to, you know what I mean? Yeah. What I, what for me, for that documentary, what I really loved the most about it was that question you asked all the other South Asian comedians that included Hasan Minaj and you're like, were you bullied? You know, uh, was Apu used as a tool to bully you? And everybody raised their hand and I felt, I just felt like, wow, you too? Like, you know, like, you know, like Alcohol Anonymous, like a committee, we're all in this together. That unity that we're all against this kind of enemy, you know, that was what, you know, stuck out for me. Yeah. Um, and you know, what's funny is that's another re- thing where, you know, you knew people didn't see the documentary who hated it because people are like, you're the only one who has a complaint. And it's like, if you saw the documentary, no, I pretty much got the whole, you know, I got the whole gang together for that. We can't yeah. really argue. And, and it's people that are old school and, and current day, like who are making art saying the same shit. Part of growing up South Asian in America is dealing with a poo back in the day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Isn't that crazy that that's part of the experience of every South Asian in a second generation South Asian in America and Canada? Oh, yeah. And, 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 and it's news to them. It's not news to us. Like, we knew this. And that's, I mean, again, the documentary is like, you know, it was nice to know I wasn't alone. And yeah, at the same time, it was kind of a bummer. Like, ah, you dealt with this too. You know, it's like that you could, that's you could. Enjoy- that's not true because the, all the people you were interviewing and talking to, you guys are all like a cool gang. You guys are like the cool gang. <laughs> the rest of us. I guess that's that. true. You know, so it's like you too. And look where you've reached and look how strong and brave you guys are. Okay. So I'm, this is okay. Everything's okay. There's hope, you know? I mean, we're in a good era, brother. I think this is an era where, you know, in terms of art, we're going to be able to expand boundaries and, you know, cause look, even though um, things have improved, we're still at a certain level where what are the stories primarily? It's mostly straight Indian men, right? Because those are the most accessible. We need more stories from women. Minnie Kaling alone can't do it. Right. No. You know, uh, we need more people who are LGBTQ to have their stories. You know, we need more immigrant stories, not the stories of, first generation people born here, but the people who came like, you know, immigrants like my parents' generation, oftentimes they're props or they're used to tell our stories, but they have stories. In fact, their stories are probably more interesting than ours because they actually had to leave a place, start over from scratch. That's the story. So, you know, there's, like I was saying, there's all these old stories that haven't been told. There's a ton of things that are much more interesting and unique. And that's what I'm excited about. When do we get there? Because look, man, it's, I think, you know, like, whether it's me or Hassan or Kumail or 
you know, Russell, like, there's, there's something familiar. It's like, oh, this is a straight dude, you know, telling stories that I think other men can relate to primarily and, and has an immigrant experience, you know, but it's very like comfortable. And I'm not saying that we're not doing anything interesting, but there's something more comfortable in that than a strong-willed woman. Mm-hmm. And that's where progress is. When you start getting like strong-willed, powerful women getting more attention in our community to share their stories. And when you get more people who are LGBTQ in the mainstream sharing their stories and their stories get normalized. This is part of our life too. Our story, like, you know, one, one more last thing on, on this idea, but people would say, um, when I was talking about the Apu thing, it's like, well, the show is full of stereotypes, right? Yeah. Like there's a stereotype of, you know, of uh, a, a bad kid, stereotype of a bully, the stereotype of, of a cop and of a politician. And I'm like, yeah, but here's the thing with that. All those th- characters can be brown too. Those aren't characteristics. Those aren't racial identifiers. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're, for us, it's like, it's a stereotype of a brown person, but that's narrow. That's turning us into justice. You could have a, a brown cop. You could have a brown mayor. You could have other characters and we could be that too, but you can't even imagine us as that. It, everything is, is about his brownness, the way they see it. And the punchlines are about him and his Indianness. And it's not to say the character hasn't been developed and is interesting, but you know, just the argument that it's stereotypes, it's all about, you know, what those stereotypes show us, I think often show us about the oppressor. What they tell us often is, well, every stereotype has a hint of truth in it, right? They always say that, like every stereotype has a little bit of truth. The thing they don't think with every stereotype gives us a bit of truth about the people who share the stereotype, what they believe when they see us, what they imagine when they see us. That's the part I don't think we can let go. When you see us, you see us as servile on some level. And when you see us, you're surprised that we speak without an accent. And when you see us, you don't think we're, we're capable of getting to your level. That's in like all these stereotypes. And I think we forget that sometimes that like, it's not, you know, they put it on us. Well, this is true, isn't it? Isn't this true about your people? And it's like, well, what does that say about your people who view us this way? I think we got to We have to question that. That's amazing. Yeah, you're right. That's crazy. What would you say about people like Bobby Jindal? 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 Who's Bobby Jindal? I'm I mean, Bobby Jindal is a, is a Indian-American politician, was the governor of Louisiana, um, conservative. You know, I think that speaks to the thing I was saying before about, like, what do you have to do to fit in? Yeah. And I'm not saying that his values are all as the result of assimilation, and what he what he thinks is the best way to to fit in, but I am saying that like there is some of that. But I am saying that like in order for him to gain power, he tro- he chose a, a particular track, and you know it's one that does not come at like th- there's a cost to be paid because he's certainly like when he's talking about immigration in ways you know that are very, in my opinion, anti-immigrant and does not respect the journey of immigrants. That to me is like, oh, you're selling us all out. Now you can say, well, our parents came legally, 
first of all, that's not true for all brown people to begin with. Secondly, why, why does legal status make someone innately better? That just means they got lucky. Mm-hmm. They got lucky to be born into a family where they got an education, where they were even able to get a visa. Also, like, look, my, my, it's not to say our parents didn't struggle. not to say my parents didn't struggle. My, my, parent, my father had to start over. He had to get a job. He had to get another degree. He had to work hard. But my father didn't have to go through a desert. Mm-hmm. My father didn't have to hide on a boat. My dad didn't have to, you know, pay smugglers all his money and then be left in the desert. I mean, what is the hard, you know what I mean? What is the harder thing to do? Like if you want to prove you're loyal to a place or if you want to prove that, that you really want to be somewhere, isn't crawling through a desert the bigger challenge than simply, you know, doing your job for 20 or 30 years. And it's not to disrespect people who, who came with legal status and, you know, with papers and all that and, and who work their asses off. But it's to say that like, why are we, like, you know, disrespecting stories of people who also are struggling, who also, you know, had a rough time getting, getting here and whose stories are as powerful, if not more powerful. And a guy like Bobby Nadal, he separates us. He separates immigrants from each other because he makes this thing about a legal thing versus like, what is human dignity? What does that have to do with paperwork? What does human dignity have to do with paperwork? Um, and so to me, like there's people like that who uh, I get frustrated by because it's, they're, they're, they're concerned with rights in terms of, um, rights mandated by the state, right? These are the laws of this land. These are the rights that we give you. These are the, but that's not the same thing as human rights. And that's not, uh, that's not the same thing as human dignity that every human being has. And I feel like to me, when we focus on like laws like that, we're forgetting our, our greater connection to humanity. I'm a human being before I'm anything else. I'm human being before I'm Hindu. I'm human being before I'm uh, a man. I'm a human being uh, before I'm an American. That's the thing. And to me, anybody who violates that idea, who works against that idea is, yeah. is no friend of mine. He's he's pretty. Po- I mean, you started a a Twitter that went viral. A hashtag. Yeah. Jindo is so white. That that blew up. I didn't know who that was until I saw that that Twitter yeah. hashtag a long time ago. That was really cool. That was fun. It was fun. All that was another one of those like everybody chipped in on. It was nice. He's like it you're all- doing things to take people people with power down. I mean, it Since felt it like it was also a unifying thing. Like I'm like, oh shit, brown Twitter exists. Like, that was the first time I knew that we had our own little connection like that. Like, wow, okay. I've heard of black Twitter, but I didn't know brown Twitter had any force. And I'm like, oh, we got, we got force because not only do we have the diaspora, like, once it got to India, it was fun. Because then you got, like, you got the numbers at that point. If, like, if, if you get the homeland involved, if you get India, Pakistan, Bangladesh involved, we got the numbers. Like, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a big deal. Let's talk yeah. about religion. Sure. How are you religious? Do you have a big, big, strong faith in you? It's it's funny. I feel like it's it's very it's a very cultural thing yeah. for me. It's like it's one thing that I find tangible that I can hold on to. 
And, you know, my mom taught us religion in a very interesting way. Like she was, it was very much based on stories and values and rituals became kind of secondary or um, like, for example, like Hindus aren't supposed to eat beef. My mom let us eat hamburgers like our whole life. And I didn't even know beef was against the rules until I was like 10. And somebody who was a friend, still my best friend, asked me why am I eating beef? And I didn't know we weren't supposed to. I asked my mom much later and she's like, you know, it didn't bother me because I know people who eat, who don't eat beef. I know Hindus who are strict about that were terrible. Just because you follow this particular ritual does not mean you're a good human being. It means that you follow a rule. Mm -hmm. I want to raise kids who actually understand, you know, what good morals and values are and are, are people who can contribute to society. It has nothing to do with beef. Right. And that to me was like, and I'm not shitting on how people choose to, you know, no, no, no. follow their faith, but I'm saying that was a philosophy that she had. Um, it was a very, she was a very practical, she is a very practical person in some ways. Like it, she, you know, she's somebody who very much is much more religious than I am is definitely is a strong, you know, he, she has a lot of faith in, in a higher being. Um, but at the same time, you know, medical background, she has a science mind. She's also somebody who's very like, you know, she's driven by science and fact and also how can you live in this society? Like what makes, what fits here? Like she's not precious about certain things. Mm -hmm. And so to me, you know, I pray every morning after my shower. Yeah. And I don't pray in a way that has any real rules. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Cause I don't speak. You know, uh, obviously I don't know Sanskrit and obviously like I don't, uh, my Telugu, which is our language in Southern India, like my, you know, my skills are minimal, but like I end up praying the way I pray and use God, the different gods as focal points. And I feel like whatever connection I have with God or whatever that essence is, it's, it's mine, you know, not for anyone else to debate or question. And, you know, Hinduism is something that it is, even if the Hindu right is trying to make it this way, it is not standardized. Mm -hmm. It is not something that has a clear set of instructions. It's not something that has a rule book. You know, Hinduism has always been something village to village, town to town has been practiced differently. There's been many different divisions and certainly how Brahmins split people up by caste is that's not universally accepted either. So let's not like pretend that like this thing is a, there's only one way to do it. I think that's, that's a useful tool for right-wing politicians to, you know, organize. Are you, do you have plans on, do you have like a plan to kind of teach your kid certain rituals, traditions, maybe the language? Or I mean, you... I feel like the language I wouldn't even be able to, which breaks my heart when I, you know, Does I thought it? about that a lot. Because it's like, you know, my parents would be the link to that. Yeah. And so that's on, you know, how long I'm lucky enough to have my parents and how, you know much my kid learns language from carries them. culture language carries a lot of culture and i think that even i mean here's the thing man even in south asia yeah south asian languages are dying because yeah. english is the language of currency so you have people who speak let's say they speak telugu they don't write telugu they don't know the how to write it they don't know how to read it because they've been in english medium schools pretty much from the beginning mm -hmm. because Telugu is not going to get you a job that pays. No. 
you need English. Yeah. And so why is anyone going to read things in Telugu? And more importantly, why would anybody write things in Telugu? Like my mom, my mom is telling me Telugu literature is being destroyed. People aren't writing in it because they don't know how to, and they don't know how to, to read it. And I think the thing that I find most interesting is they don't know necessarily how to think in it. If you're thinking in English in a, in a language that isn't yours to begin with, there's going to be things that are lost in translation. There's going to be thoughts that because of la- your mastery of language and because of your, the connection you have to that language, it lets you, I think, think even further and, and, even, and, and see your culture a certain way. Once you take language out of it, your language out of it, it, it it's going to affect how you process things. And, and that, that, that really saddens me that, that, you know, all these years after the British left, it's now that you're really seeing the devastation of culture in a lot of ways, because like we're losing something that, you know, I mean, it's sad enough when the diaspora, when we lose it, yeah. but there's something about that that seems very like, well, you know, that's comes with immigration. And even if I was able to hold my language, how many generations would it last after that when it's not being practiced regularly, right? But when you're in the place, when you're in the, the homeland and it's dying there, that's what really hurts me. Cause it's like, man, but that's the root. Like if the culture is dying from the root, what do you do? Even my cousin in Pakistan, they all speak English to me. They don't speak yeah. to me. That's crazy. It's, I mean, have you seen that show Rami? Yes, I love that show. I love Rami, man. Do you see that episode when he goes to, well, there's a few episodes when he goes to Egypt and he has that cousin that just wants to speak to him in English? Yes. Like it's, I mean, I get it. There's a certain sense of, it's like on one hand, we're going over there, want to get a deeper sense of connection to who we are. And then we're talking to family people who want to practice their English and have a, <laughs> feel, have a sense of like, hey, I'm more cosmopolitan than you think I am, yeah. you know? And you know, there's that freaking, but you know, it's some it's of the stuff. It's part of it's our partly our fault too. We never, we don't speak our language. You know, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I don't know. I just didn't see the point of it at the. At, I mean, at that there time. was a there was a time period where you had all these communities living in the same place, right? So let's say you live in a you know, in a Spanish community generations and the language is still alive there because the neighborhood speaks Spanish, right? Yes. Then there's a practical value in your day-to-day and it's practice, you know. If you, like, I didn't grow up in a big Telugu community where I was always around Telugu people who were speaking it all the time. It's like, it's not that I didn't know Telugu people. I didn't have cousins. I didn't have family. I didn't have get-togethers or there weren't Telugu conventions and things like that. But it wasn't that a language that would be used let's say like Spanish would be. And so the language just by, by that alone, you have to force yourself to speak it. You have to speak it in the house with your parents and you have to be able to switch off back and forth constantly. And for us, it's like, well, you know, English is what lets us express more complicated thoughts because we obviously know it better. Mm-hmm. We read in English, we, we watch media in English. It's, it's a lot easier to lose the language and, and you know we lost it you know when my grandmother lived with us for a few years we, we had it but once she moved back to India there was no way to really practice it and it you know it, it it went with us and I know that for my kid I know most likely he might know a few words in Telugu but I I, I, I think most likely he he's not going to have it and if he does I'd be amazing but you know that's one of the losses you know 
And it happens. And look, it's not a new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in New York and I'd meet kids who call themselves Italian and Irish. And they never spoke the language. Never, don't speak Italian. Never, never been to Ireland. Yeah. You know, don't actually know the traditions. They have their, their Italian American traditions. They have their Irish American traditions. They have a, a new set of traditions or their, you know, they have a, an identity that's kind of shaped on that. But that's what happens with any kind of immigration. It changes. Like you think of brown people in Guyana or brown people in Trinidad, it's not the same thing anymore. No. You know, it, it takes on a new form. And, you know, am I going to say that these people are, are less brown as a result? No, it just means that, like, they're definitely, it's definitely, you know, they're Trinidadian more than they are, are Indian, and I'm American more than I am Indian. Like, it just out of, how, how could I be? And so that's just what happens when you, you immigrate, and, and you can only save culture for so long. What about what about the replacement of your old culture with this new American culture? So there was a debate on Twitter about how people of different faiths, you know, Hinduism, Islam, uh, put up a Christmas tree during Christmas because I mean, I mean, hell, I have a tree right now. Yeah, but you have a you have a my a kid's also you know is also like he's half, half is exactly. half yeah. Well, let's just say you know a Pakistani couple who grew up in America, Canada decided to put up a Christmas tree. I had a Christmas tree growing up though. My parents are Hindu, you know? I mean, yeah. I think our, our thinking is, you know, we didn't see religious value to it. We saw it as a holiday and this is a tree. Yeah. Even in Christianity, what do pine trees have to do with Christianity? There were no pine trees in the Middle East. Like, like you know, where are all these white people and pine trees at Jesus's time? What do you, like, what do you, you know, it, this, you know, I think the background of the pine trees, they're actually, it's actually like um, a, a Scandinavian tradition, like Yule. It's, it's like a pagan holiday. And so you just, they just combined the two. And now you have this one holiday from this one people. And then you have this other holiday from another people come together. And we have Christmas trees with Jesus on them. Like it's a different, and Santa, where does that fit into anything? Do you know what I mean? So yeah, capitalism and immigration and you know the natural movement of culture changed and western customs i guess what i'm trying to say is it's kind of like a a path to a different direction a christmas tree it, it and it's it's either you accept it or you or you fight it and to us it's like well this is going to be you know i got you know hanuman on my christmas tree right now man i got hindu gods hanging off my christmas tree like to me you know it, this is it's an American holiday more than it's a religious holiday. You can practice it in a religious way. Yeah. You know, but like, like, Hall- I see, like Halloween. Yeah. Like, look, if I see, you know, statues of Jesus in a courthouse, I'm going to be pissed. Cause I'm like, this is a separation of church and state in this country. If I see a Christmas tree in Santa, I'm fine with it. You know what I mean? Because at that point, that's the universal part of it. That's the part that anyone can have presents. Anyone can have a tree. Decorating mm-hmm. a tree is fun. My kid's going to have a fun time doing that. The religion has been so, like Christianity has been mainstreamed and capitalism has had its way with it. Mm-hmm. Whenever they talk about Christianity being like um, taken away in this country or, or there's a war on it, no, there isn't. There is no war on Christmas. And if there is, it's capitalism that's do, that has the war. Mm-hmm. You know, it's changed the meaning of this thing. So, you know, to me, it's not a, 
you know, it's not a religious holiday in that way. Like Ramadan is a, a religious holiday. It's hard to mainstream that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's not a fun, it's not a fun uh, thing. There's no bush. There's no tree. There's no special stick. There's You're no just hungry. You're just hungry. It's a very, you know what I mean? But it's this very thing be capitalistic in that, in that way, there's no, there's no hook. There's, you know, at least, you know, like there's a tree involved and there's this, there's, are there, I mean, you tell me, brother, cause I don't know. Are there Ramadan sales? Do people no. or do mattresses come cheap? You know, there's still a religious connection. That's deep. Yeah. This is a, this is a tree connected to a place where Jesus is not even from. Yes. None of this makes sense. So, you know, to me, you know, would I have a cross in my house? No. No. Probably not. You know, my kid becomes Christian. That's his right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a tree is a tree. And it, it, it you know, that to me that I, I don't see any connection. I mean, that's the thing. Culture... You know, I think people assume that culture is stagnant. Culture in India isn't the same as it was when my parents were there. Culture from one part of India to another part of India isn't the same. Mm -hmm. It varies by religion, by like language, by food and customs. There's no consistency. The you know, India pre-British colonialism and post-British colonialism are completely different things. Like history keeps moving. Culture is not the same thing. The one thing you would hope, though, is that you can impact culture. You can impact culture equally to the way it impacts you. Mm -hmm. That's the part that's always been unfair, right? Like the West come, you know, you have colonizers, they come in, they might take, you know, curry with them. And but they're also taking like our natural resources and our wealth. You know, it's, it's like this unfair thing where we're forced to speak English because that's what's going to get us jobs and that's the thing that's going to get But they don't respect our stuff. And when they do respect our stuff, it's cultural appropriation because they're using it to make money. Or yeah. They're using it for, for points and status. It's not like a equal, I'm putting something out. You know, like when we talk about cultural things, we're made fun of. Curry smells funny. You know, why are you wearing that dot? If Gwen Stefani's wearing that dot, it's fine because it's, it's fashion at that point. You know what I mean? And that's the part that, that's frustrating to me. Culture's going to change. You can hold on to whatever you can hold on to, but it's never going to look the same. If my parents never left India and I was born there, it wouldn't look the same. Mm -hmm. I know more about the Mahabharat and the Ramayana and all these Hindu epics. I know more about it than most of my cousins in India. I can guarantee that. And, and oftentimes, like, and you hear this, like people who, who convert end up being more fanatical than the people that were born with it. Yeah. And that's true kind of across the board because they're desperately trying to hold on to something, right? It gives them meaning. If you're born into it, you just kind of, you know, it's like I'm in New York. I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. I was born and raised here. But if I was a tourist, you know I'm going to go to the Statue of Liberty. Because, like, to me, it's just so part of the, the thing. You don't even think about making it a part of your journey. And I think the same thing is true with culture oftentimes or religion. It's like, I'm just living in it. I don't need all that other stuff. I'm living in it and I'm making a life without having to prove anything to myself or other people. And I think that's different. When you say you're from New York, you don't need to show them pictures of you at the Statue of Liberty. If you're a tourist... 
hey, I went to New York, here's me at the Statue of Liberty. It takes on a completely different meaning. Hey, brother, I should probably leave soon because I got a baby I got to take care of. All right, sorry, sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'm good. We have an hour. Man, this has been really fun. You want to tell the audience something? There's a big South Asian community listening to you. I mean, first, everyone should follow Brown History because I love your Instagram, man. Don't do that. Let's talk about Dude, I love, love, love your Instagram account. I I think it gives us so much in terms of, you know, just little pieces of things. Like, I've read things and then Googled stuff after based on, like, a post. Like, your posts are pretty, like, straightforward, but they spark ideas. And they give me a little bit of culture or a, like light a match I didn't think about before. And it makes me have to look into our culture and how we got here. You know, it, it, give, it, it adds so much. And there's a reason why you have so many followers and so many of us in the community value it. So. Do you know how ironic this conversation is? Because what? your documentary is what gave me the courage to make that page. And two, what? I would read your interviews and... I would try to find out what books you like, and then you recommended a book called uh, uh, Vijay Prasad, Karma of Brown Folks. Books. And then I read that book because you said it was changed your life. <laughs> and then I read that, and then and then I got hungry for more knowledge, and it led me to this path. And here we are talking to each other. Oh, this makes my day. Isn't that crazy? This makes my day. That's that's amazing, man. Well, I mean, that's that i think people should sign up to your page and selfishly i'll say you should watch my netflix special warn your relatives That's and you should netflix show. you should watch it everyone and you should, should watch it and the problem with of who's available on hbo max so if you're in the states there's you know there's ways to do it so um and, and also pl- podcast politically reactive uh with w Bell and me every thursday and uh, my brother and i have a podcast the kundabolu brothers podcast or the untitled kundabolu brothers project it comes, it's, we like to call it a pop-up podcast. We don't know, you know, we, we release it in small batches. Sounds, we don't know it's just, when not, it's just a nice way of saying you don't have a schedule. No schedule whatsoever. It shows up when it shows up. But, you know, if, if, if you know, I'm assuming people who are listening to this, many of them care about cultural content, the idea of South Asian identity in different places. We do a lot of that on our show. It's mm-hmm. very different because it's a relationship between two brothers, but like, it's a very, I think for, for people who are either South Asian or, or regardless if you're South Asian, if you have siblings, if you have that kind of close connection to family, I think this show is pretty, our, our podcast is really fun for a lot of people because I think it is ident- like relatable. They can identify relatable. with it. So yeah, I, I would say the Kundabola Brothers podcast is another thing people here might want to check out. Awesome. Great. Brother, so nice to meet you. It Thank you nice for having me. It's an honor to meet you. Ditto, man. See ya.